right, everybody. Welcome to the one within all. Doing things a little differently today. We've got ourselves a live stream, and you probably weren't expecting that. However, a lot of you are probably just hearing this on the playback later as normal. But watch out for that YouTube channel of mine and Facebook page. I'm doing more and different things. Today, we are live streaming this conversation specifically because I needed to be adaptable about publishing some content this week because I'm about to go on a trip out of town and be divorced from technology temporarily to a degree, as much as one can be. And I'm very excited about that. But more exciting is that I'm going to be continuing a conversation today with somebody that I met recently online, and his name is John Coleman. He is a pedagogical expert, if you will, pedagogical preacher. <laughs> and pedagogy is the teaching of children, how we raise our children. And very important subject since all of us were young at one time. And every human that is ever born going forward is also going to be young when they start out. And so how we form and shape those minds or allow them to form and shape themselves, more importantly, is going to be very important for our future. And it's an obvious cliched idea. But really, when we get into the meat and potatoes of the education system as it is the, uh, in modern times and for the last several decades, it is an atrocity. It's a nightmare. And it's largely about conforming people into the uh, mindset of being an authority order follower and not having a much of an ability to think for themselves or choose their own direction in life. And we see the results of that all around us in more and more codependency, more and more listlessness and a feeling of general unease and immaturity in each and every successive generation coming up, feeling like the borderline into adulthood is further and farther away with no, nothing resembling rites of passage to help people make that jump into adepthood in their existence. So we're going to be continuing a conversation that we started with John on his YouTube channel that you can find linked in the show notes. And it was a great talk. We really got into the origins of what the education system as it is now came from and the intention behind the creators of it. But we're going to continue where we left off with John. Now, you can find his stuff on YouTube, like I said, linked in the show notes. And I'm going to let him introduce his other website because I want to make sure the name is pronounced correctly. So let's bring John on. And thank you so much, my friend, for hopping in a live stream with me today and being willing to give us another big chunk of time to represent this very important topic that is largely left behind when we talk about current world events because everyone thinks oh it's on lock you know they got public education government's paying for it it's all good we need to just worry about you know whatever the social movement flavor of the day is but all right welcome to the show john thanks for coming on hey chance how's it going how's it going thank you so much for having me and uh, for for being available to continue our great chat from last week. I think this is something that a lot of people will benefit from, and certainly it's something I've been looking forward to. Well, me too, especially because I even re-listened to the talk that we had last time and found that really we did dig into some very important core reasons and causes for why people aren't really being raised in a sense. I mean, like in a spiritual sense, raised, ascending beyond where they were. So would you mind maybe giving us a recap of some of the important points that we got into last time so that that's a good jumping on point? Because many listeners might not have even caught that chat yet. And I want to start off from there. And I think 
we made some really key discoveries through going uh, through a speech by John Taylor Gatto. So help us out. Tell us who that is, what his speech was about, and what some of the conclusions were that we reached in our first chat. Absolutely, absolutely. So John Gatto was the teacher of the year in New York a number of times, at least twice, I'm, I'm certain. And he uh, presented the article we looked at last week. And as Chance has said, the the first part of our discussion, which I would suggest to the viewers to, to um, take as a, a prerequisite for this discussion, we discussed this speech he, he made in 1991. And John Gatto, who's something of um, a legend in, in certain alternative ed communities, certainly unschoolers, which is how I came across them about 10 years ago, uh, he gave this speech himself a career teacher and then he basically quit formal education after that and donated his time and dedicated his time to writing and to lecturing about, well, to quote one of his books, a better teacher, a better way to teach. And, you know, Gatto himself didn't really um, come up with a lot of these ideas, but he certainly continued a discussion which... Well, I mean, I suppose it really goes back to the beginning of the 20th century with the likes of uh, Maria Montessori and Rudolf Steiner and uh, continued through the 70s with the likes of Ivan Ilyich and John Holt. John Holt is uh, the one who's actually he, he coins, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, he coins uh, both the terms homeschooling and unschooling at a time where they were not uh, quite distinguishable. And that would be a, a uh, interesting uh, separate topic, maybe for another day, the, the interaction and the, the ultimate uh, parting of the ways between unschoolers and homeschoolers uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, because really, the the um, we'll say the alternative ed grade school movement. Uh, it was a combination. Just bringing this backstory to John Gatto, it was a combination of really the counterculture of the '60s, as well as a type of evangelical Protestantism, which was um, less and less uh, comfortable being in the mainstream. And so you have this interesting dynamic within early homeschooling of. Of that, of the counterculture and of uh, the religious right, to, to use a phrase that was popular back then. And that interaction is quite fascinating. But the point is that Gatto really brings the, the critique of education coming from various quarters uh, throughout the 20th century. He brings that into the 90s and into, I guess we call it the aughts, the early part of this century. And he did it in a very relatable way fashion uh, in his writing with his classroom observations and with his uh, speechifying. And Gatto uh, died, I believe, uh, two years prior to this recording in the year of 2020 and uh, had, had a stroke and had some health problems before that. But he was quite prolific throughout his life, even into his retirement, bringing up that factory a uh, concept of education, and I, I would suggest uh, largely popularizing it, um, or at least making it more popular than than it was. And the consequences of the mentality of industrialism on 
um, on us, on our psyches, and on our on our society. Gatto wasn't unique in that. Uh, Ivan Ilyich, a, a Jesuit priest from the 70s, uh, the author of Deschooling Society, he was certainly wise to that. Others have been too, but I would say Gatto really popularized and made digestible in a way that John Holt or the other other sorts didn't uh, his pedagogy and and um, shall we say a more natural and um, di- indeed digestible uh, critique of modern pedagogy. Yeah. So <laughs> really, when you talk about the industrial mindset, to me, it just brings to the light the images of. Mordor and Lord of the Rings and Sauron with all his fiery furnaces and black towers. And I really see more and more that people are being turned into orcs spiritually. And that's not like a slight to my brothers and sisters. It's just that what do the orcs do in that story is they're like constantly at each other's throats. But when the master comes, they do what he says. And like, that's kind of what people are like with the whatever the TV box tells them to think or the social media trend tells them to think, then that's what the master said, but they're going to fight with each other over how that's actually to be interpreted or what that means or which master is even the right one. And it's kind of a, a bloodbath metaphorically for our collective consciousness with so many lines of division that have been uh, drawn and created and invented and all the titles and imagined statuses that divide people in their mind from other human beings when in fact all that stuff is just like words and made up but where does this first come into play i think like as early as being a five-year-old in kindergarten and being told all right boys line up on the left girls on the, the right and walk in single file silently without making a peep and all these little like just it seems like the way you would train a dog <laughs> and i mean that because it's uh, effective and people are, or children, I guess, are very sponge-like at that age. But so what are some of the critiques that Gatto had in this essay that we talked about last time that you think are worth uh, bringing up now so that we can launch off of them? Certainly, certainly. And by way of um, viewer background inside baseball here, I'm hitting the mute button. So please excuse any um, any slight delays there between Chance and myself. It's just for your audio pleasure. (laughs) Um, But yes, let's let's summarize some of these these critiques. Uh, both in the essay and then if I may, uh, in the larger critique of education that's that's unfolded over the last century or so. Um, one of them is, as, as Chance had mentioned, this listlessness, to use Chance's word, this aimlessness of students that Gatto mentions that he uses his personal examples in the essay as well as in a different kind of teacher, which is largely a, a larger meditation and extrapolation, a published book on it. And uh, he actually has a much, much larger book on the on the topic as well. So you have different uh, different gears depending on, on your uh, reading uh, interests there with, with John Taylor Gatto. 
But one of them is that listlessness. And boy, oh boy, uh, 2020 is, is really showing the damages of that because there's a certain busyness in modern pedagogy. And as far as I'm concerned, that is not just a critique of public education, but also of private education and of homeschooling. Uh, they're largely the same models. I, I always have to remind people of that. Sometimes people think uh, private schools or homeschools, uh, homeschoolers get off the hook, but it's actually the exact same DNA model that comes from, from the industrial system, and it produces the same people. And at this very interesting moment in formal learning, that is 2020, and depending on how long uh, Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates want to string this out, uh, 2021 or 2022 and so forth, um, the, the critique I suggest of education should be expanded beyond just um, the, the, the whipping boy that public education has become to you know, pointing fingers at other uh, related genres, all for the interest of, of the teachers and the students. But uh, one of them, getting to the main point, is the busyness of uh, modern education. And as Chance indicated, sometimes just for its own sake, obedience just for its own sake. So Gatto gets into that in his writing, in his speech, as well as the... Uh, the, the lack of agency, that's a word we use in, in history quite a bit and in the social sciences, but the lack of a student who goes through this system and goes, and, and Gatto points this out in his writings, not so much in the, the speech, but in a different kind of teacher, um, you know, the use of even words like course, which comes from cursus in Latin, cursus, the, the racetrack, the circle, the circle that, that goes nowhere. Um, one of the wow, things I've that, never made that connection, but it, the, the words do reveal quite a bit, don't they? Yes, absolutely. A circuit. a circuit. Yes, yes, yes. And I would uh, encourage uh, interested viewers in the word topic to get into Chance's late discussion with Clint Richardson, a very valuable man and researcher himself. But, you know, and I've seen this, I've actually seen this in, in my own students here in Connecticut, that the longer they've been in formal education and then um, have left it, the more difficult it is for them to take agency. So I, I want to define that word. And this is something that Gatto points out that students, uh, it kind of atrophies in students as the years go by. Agency is one self-direction. Um, and it has larger uh, social ramifications that uh, we can we can uh, tease out if, if chance wants to. Um, well, what happens when you have a whole society of people who are not in the habit of acting on their internal um, wishes and, and their internal um, I don't want to say whims or wishes, even this seems too flim flammy, but their internal direction. Well, you get you get 2020. You get a, a most prostrate society. Uh, so Gatto points that out as also being another thing that happens in the modern system is that people 
because they're out of practice for you know nearly two decades, they don't even know how to direct their lives at a certain point. And I think those are two good critiques that we can we can kick off with. I I could not agree more. That is a huge deal because I lived through that. I had no internal compass that I was aware of. I mean, of course, you can't actually get rid of your internal compass. But in my early 20s, I did have a, a definite inability, you could say, or hadn't practiced the ability or it was atrophied, the ability to just like do something that I decided I wanted to do and create and manifest some experience or, you know, create creation into the world, right? It, instead, it was like, go to work, go to class, do what the classwork says, do what the boss says at work, come home, play video games, or maybe watch TV, but more video games for me. And what's that? It's actually the same thing as work in school, but on a screen. It's like, here you go. Uh, it's it's dressed up fancy with like a story sometimes, but a lot of games, it's not even. It's like kill 30 bears or whatever. And you're literally just doing a job again. And they even pay you and fake money in the game too. <laughs> so it's really like stimulus response, um, instruction, follow instruction, get your reward, Pavlonian, I mean, dog training, really. And it goes on and on from there, like, like whatever facet of society you are approaching. And now in 2020, the listlessness of not being able to actually go and follow the lines with the rest of the herd and like attend the big baseball game or whatever it is that for you is the thing that gives you enough of a distraction and excitement that you forget about the internal feeling of no direction. Like you can't even do that right now or for a while you weren't able to. It depends on where you're at, I guess. And I hope that everyone's aware that like the suicide rates are higher right now, supposedly than ever before. And I don't want to claim something that's just like a statistic that came from the internet somewhere, but I'll just say in my own experience, I've heard of people committing suicide a lot this year of like someone that knew somebody. And so I know that it's happening. I don't need the media to tell me it's happening or the, the statistic to tell me it's happening. People are feeling lost because being stuck at home and having the, no sense of direction. I mean, Netflix gets boring even if it's got every program that's ever been made on earth in there. I mean, it's essentially you're doing the same thing no matter what the window dressing is. I mean window dressing because that's what the screen is. It's just like a window that changes colors and shapes. But all you're doing is sitting there staring at a screen. And I mean, to some degree, you could critique, critique that in me right now. I'm sitting here staring at a screen talking to it. But, but I know that you happen to be a real flesh and blood living man on the other end of these pipes and tubes of the internet. And that what we're doing right now is self-directed. We are both acting in a self-directed way in unison, actually. And it comes out as something pretty cool, which is this type of a conversation. But like for me, until I started actually making things, I felt a void inside. And I brought that up in the last conversation. But what's, yeah, I mean, it's not just, I guess that was a roundabout way of explaining that it's not just the busy work that they keep you doing in school. And I think it's phenomenal that you bring up that homeschooling is the same deal, but just at home, <laughs> same kind of curriculum. And I, I think we can get into critiquing like the problems with that type of curriculum and maybe solutions. You could help us with some uh, alternative pedagogical philosophies, if you will, that work outside of the 
boundaries of, you know, public education, homeschooling curriculums that are all the same. I think it's just very important that we realize that the busyness also carries over into like whatever the TV shows you're watching. Well, you got 10 more episodes to get through before you can watch the next show that you care about or video game you're playing. You got all quests to do and whatever the, the job is like, it's all just stuff to keep you busy, keep you spinning on your hamster wheel in your nice, fancy golden cage. And the, that's kind of what it is. And <laughs> I, I won't be argued with about that, that we that we actually live in a form of slavery or feudalism, but that it's just so well disguised that most people think that it's what they really want. But the feeling inside of listlessness and lack of direction and lack of accomplishment or lack of just feeling at ease with who you are as a being, that is not worth any amount of comfort or superficial uh, attainments. You know, like that feeling is antithetical to life itself like like it's supposed to feel good to be you and to be in your body and it's not supposed to really need to achieve achieve anything to feel good because just being you is good goodness itself and we've been trained that it's like also that if you don't jump through the hoops and get the uh rewards and do the achievements then you are less valuable and we put monetary value on everything in this commercial system from our time to our uh you know our looks and every every little detail, like it's all just layers of superficiality and masks upon superficiality and masks. And I, I think that we need to get out of that fake time, which is the the circle, the course, the the circuit running in a circle. That's the Chronos like fake controller uh, <laughs> demiurge version of time because it's not actually time because it's actually repeating a cycle over and over again. And then get back into what the real passage of time is about, which is your spiritual development. Like that's how you should be marking the passage of time is how you are evolving as a being. And everything else is just like wheels within wheels that actually didn't take you anywhere new to begin with. It's like a cul-de-sacs that you're, you keep getting stuck in. And so I think that's an important distinction to like get out of the, the fake time of, you know, man's calendar and the nine to five and get back into the real time, which is yourself and where that's going yes i mean that's a fine observation about um well you mentioned windows i i can't help but uh mention that a certain figure who's on the tv whenever i seem to turn on is always giving interviews this year um and he's very famous for selling a product called windows and uh, that's that's quite uh, an interesting point you bring up. And you know, you mentioned this this most uh, weighty statistic, and I've anecdotally heard the same thing about the suicide rate going up. And obviously, that's connected to people who've been reared um, in the lowest form of human activity, a, a legitimate form, but but historically, in many many modern societies, including the Western society, considered to be the lowest of human activities, that is to say commerce, people have been reared on this. And now because of these, these disruptions in 2020, uh, people don't know what to do. And I'm reminded of uh, a very early and significant sociological work called uh, On Suicide by a sociologist, really pioneering man, Emile Durkheim, about 
I, I reckon about 120 years ago, around 1900, that book was published. And he noted that. He noted that this uh, tragedy uh, is is uh, not unique to the modern era, the industrial era, that is to say suicide, uh, the topic of that book, obviously, but that it is more pronounced in Western industrial societies. And it gets back, and he's, he noticed this 120 years ago, it gets back into that lack of meaning uh, that is really being shown, you know, being shown in this society. People are on edge. I, I see it in, in a lot of different ways, not the least of which is driving around and uh, just walking down the street. People are just really edgy after after the start of this, this uh, new uh, normal. And I think this gets back something that's very fundamental to to my uh, pedagogy and what I've tried to build here in Connecticut for the past seven years. And that is the concept which undergirds uh, my work. And I, I hope uh, to introduce this to others, to viewers and so forth, which is an expanded understanding of wealth. Uh, and in my writing and in, in my uh, speaking and so forth, I've, I've delineated a number of wealths, uh, uh, you know, off the cuff, we could say spiritual wealth, cultural wealth, uh, social wealth, if we may delineate culture and social, uh, society, um, personal wealth, and indeed, commercial wealth. That is an aspect of this reality. It's not uh, necessarily without its merits. Um, I'm kind of happy I don't have to travel around with 50 cows and things when I want to, uh, whatever, get an Xbox or whatever. But you know, there there is a place for this uh, on a certain level if you if you keep your your foot on the neck of it and you don't let it to get out of control as it has over the last 150 to 200 years. There's even a place uh, for for commercial wealth as well. But that understanding of wealth that is, I suggest, uh, a good place for us uh, who seek to restore formal learning and uh, other types of learning as well. Uh, to to begin with, what is value? What is the raison d'être? What is the raison d'être? What is the reason or the telios of education, of learning? And I suggest it is in that five-way delineation, but I'm open to other, other sorts of wealths as well. well I, I like to always just say health is wealth. And in a sense, that's true because you know, like I love shifting this conversation to commerce and currency in a way because that actually i mean we wouldn't get the industrial society we have without the mindset regarding commerce and currency that we have and it's really quite amazing i mean your current your personal current you could say relates to your health the electric charge your energetic charge within whether it's healthy and in balance and powerful or weak and distorted and wobbly if you have the wobbly type of personal energy, if your current is damaged or weak, it's going to manifest in a less currency flowing to you and through you because all things being one in nature, your personal energy is also a, a, the same thing in a different form that the current C is. And <laughs> so we, we got to keep that in mind at all times and that, the more healthy we are, of course, the more we will be able to do that will generate actual wealth. But 
I think it is important to make that distinction between the commercial wealth and like the fiat currency versus actual real wealth in the world because health isn't the only form of wealth of course you've got things that sustain you are forms of real wealth that have actual value so you're able to establish a, a garden or a food forest on land that you have access to or that is actually considered by the system to be your property then you've got real wealth if you have access to water that you don't need any trucks to bring it to you and you can get it at any time that's a form of wealth all the things that you can do for yourself to live better and healthier and easier, those are all real wealth. And then most of what passes for wealth is like nowadays, it's like devices and consumer products that will actually wind up being trash. And it's symbolically perfect because all this stuff that winds up as junk was paid for with a type of currency that is actually debt itself. Debt is built into every dollar in fiat currency. You don't get one without the other. So there's always more debt than there is actual money in the currency. So the things that it's being, are being built and traded through this discharge of debt are things that wind up being trash. And like, you know, the creator doesn't make trash. So right away when we're producing all this trash, We've done something that is against the creator, against nature, against source. It's just not the way that it's done. And of course, nature won't, I mean, to nature, the shit isn't even trash. I mean, it'll find a place for it and use it. It might take a long time, but it might stink up our environment in the, like, you know, in the immediate future because we're temporal and only here for a brief measure. So it's important to look at that as well. Like if there's garbage <laughs> circulating and then garbage is being created, it stands to reason that garbage is also being put into the minds of human beings. It's just like, is artificiality versus reality? That's what's going on. And most of what humanity, like that's the actual God versus Satan is like <laughs> nature versus what, it, what does not exist, ex nihilo. And in a sense, that's like what we're really doing is filling people up with a bunch of ideas that don't actually have any existence in nature in the form of like, whatever your social status is, I'm, I'm a this or I'm an ist or this religion or, you know, all these different things. We're filling people up with knowledge of different statuses and arguments and social divides that have no reality in nature because they're just human language-based constructs. And then they're too full to actually learn something useful, like how to take care of themselves or because they got too much of the time being taken away from them and they're actually giving it up. But you're Back to currency, your time is the real currency. Spiritual uh, currency is attention and energy flows where attention is directed in your life. So keep all that in mind if you want to actually generate some form of actual tangible wealth, what you would call generational wealth, as in it generates something real because nature generates. And also you can pass it on to future generations and give them something that they can actually use that's not based in a system of debt that could collapse at any time because like I could have $10 million and pass it on to, you know, my son or something someday. And then by the time he got it, it's like $10 million to buy a loaf of bread. Have fun with that because of inflation. But that's a lot of, I went in a lot of circles and courses on, on that explanation. But I think, I mean, I, I'm definitely open to any responses you have to anything specific in there. But if we can also segue our ways towards like, okay, what does, uh, what does healthy pedagogy look like that's based in reality as opposed to being based in fictions? I'd love to explore that because I'm sure that you're the man that knows more than one plan probably.
Great, absolutely. So before I address that, uh, yeah, I'll just quickly uh, to to respond to some great points you bring up there, uh, Chance. Uh, one of the difficulties we're facing in 2020, at least I see this in my work, is that the the problem, the social problem, the the lack of wealth, and I I, I mean that not just in um, in monetary wealth, but the other four that I mentioned, um, that. And, and those more serious and weighty sorts of wealth, the, the spiritual wealth, the cultural, the social wealth, and uh, that personal wealth. And that could be health on a personal level, um, social wealth, just to define our terms here. That could be knowing the people around you, knowing, hey, you know, why is that street called Smith Lane? You know, knowing the families going back, knowing the history of the land. Knowing, knowing that aspect of things, knowing the literature, I'm in Connecticut, knowing the poetry of this particular part of the country, the architecture, the food, these things are like their own species. We've been denuded of these things, and deliberately so. Um, and we, could, we, we can hash out those definitions a bit more later. Um, but that problem, which, which I, I've certainly been aware of and, and actively working against here on the ground for seven years, Eight years almost. Um, that's become exponentially harder because of the disruptions of this year in terms of people's interpersonal connections, their rhythms, and and indeed their own health and their social and spiritual health. So um, we we take that into account. And in that regard, to uh, address something you brought up about trash, um, we're not making trash. <laughs> um, the, 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 the giant co uh, companies are making trash. They're the ones selling us this stuff with 10 different bags around and styrofoam and so forth. It's like when people say um, about, you know, oh, we went to war. No, it's this clique that, that's doing all this. And then they're blaming us for it. Yeah, we got into that in the last conversation, which is how like people have become entrained to identify themselves as the state. And then it's like, oh, shit. It's kind of my fault that they blew up a bunch of kids in a drone raid, but we do have to make distinctions where it is and it isn't us, but then also where we are connected to it. Cause it can, it can be not us. That's like, we're not making the trash, but also we, maybe we bought some trash, so we're connected to it, but we're not the makers of it. But you know, we're part of that chain, part of that course or that circuit in a lot of places. And I brought that up with the, the militaristic thing in terms of how taxation energetically connects us through the whole debt death based system. But I just wanted to point that out as a caveat that I like where you're going though. <laughs> Excellent. And then I want to address your question of what is, you know, what does healthy pedagogy look like? Um, but then I noticed you mentioned, you know, that the God Satan paradigm or that, that way of uh, framing things. I'm, I'm just reminded because I finished rereading re it the other day because we run a course here on Dante that basically Dante's conception of Satan is a machine. It's basically a machine. Um, if you see it, it's very mechanical. Once you get to the center of the inferno, it's just a mechanical, it just, it just munches people and its wings are almost like um, windmills. There's nothing life. Uh, living about about Dante's conception. I thought that was very interesting. You mentioned that. Um, I'm going to have to go revisit that text because I think I never made it very many rings of hell in back in the day. Right. And there's two other parts after hell too that people forget about. It gets more positive too after. Um, but also, um, yeah, that take, just to riff on something we brought up uh, last conversation, 
uh, the idea of taking care of oneself. I was just, I, I was thinking about this. I mentioned it last week, but one of the things, you know, we pick this stuff up as children and, it, you know, it takes a while for it to, to work out. One of the things that occurred to me, I, it was very late into my twenties before I, I was uh, you know doing any type of exercise, formally speaking. And one of the reasons was from my school days that and with no no malice on the part of the gym teacher, but, you know, he would say to us, go run, go run. And I always associate that with running at a full clip and being winded and being um, uncomfortable. And it wasn't until way, way into my adult years that that it occurred to me that, oh, you can jog. I know that seems like such a stupid uh, uh, demarcation, but it, it's an example of of, you know, this mindset that we we take from modern schooling. And, and again, I say it that it's not because it's malicious necessarily on the part of the instructors, but it, it's this system that you you just get into these habits and you don't question them until life circumstances, maturity or or, um, you know, hard lessons cause you to do so. And I thought that was just a vignette to follow up from last week there. Well, and you know, before, like we'll get to solutions. We've got plenty of time, but I do want to also say what you've pointed out there makes me think of how really anyone that gets deep enough into the system to start to understand it from an insider's perspective and realize why it's and how it's operating against, you know, humanity, you uh, like most of the time that person is now so invested in it that it's like, well, if I pull out now, or even if I attack this thing, I'll basically have the rug pulled out from under my entire life. You know, I'll lose my house. My wife probably won't like me anymore. Uh, it goes on. And like, this is where I believe, I mean, I'm, I'm going to not be able to know who the exact quotes were from, but I think it might've been like a Rothschild or something, but there's this classic quote from the banksters of, I, you know, give me control of a nation's currency and I care not who writes its laws. And then another quote that is often tied to that is that basically saying exactly what I said, that if someone at, like the, the common people will never understand how the system suppresses them and anyone that rises rises up high enough to actually start to comprehend the system will already be benefiting from it enough that they won't want to give that up. And I think that's kind of how the march has moved forward decade after decade is that, you know, by the time you're powerful enough, so to speak, to do something about it, you're already tied into it. And then now they're, you know, or you're getting crushed under the boot and just scraping by and 30 years go by and you're like, wow, I've worked at the same place as just like a regular wage employee. And now I'm 60 years old. And um, that was my life. I mean, because I'm sick now and I, you know, I'm not going to make it. 10 more years unless I'm really lucky and I'm going to be in and out of hospitals. And like, you're not fighting any battles against the evils of society at that point. You're just like hanging on by your fingernails. And that's kind of the meat grinder that we've been going through slowly, but surely generation after generation, getting more and more gilded the cage, but also more and more uh, insidious, the illusions. Yes, and that was kind of what I was referencing about 2020 is, for instance, you mentioned fiat currency. We're at a point right now where, you know, the, the fiat concept, we think of printing money, even that is light years, you know, even more decomposed this year. They're, they're trying to kick the last of us who are not on the banking system. They're trying to kick us into this thing. 
um, by basically cutting off physical money altogether. So that's the acceleration you you um, you mentioned there, and that I certainly feel as well. Um, I, what, I've heard that the national debt, which is a hilarious made up number, but it just represents all the money they've ever printed. I believe I heard that they added the entire amount that's ever been put in the debt to the debt this year. So like every all the debt that ever been created was just doubled in one year <laughs> in the U.S. It's hilarious. Like I always say this, but every country, if you put all the countries in the world on a map and it colored them red, if they were in debt, every country's red. So there you go. Like who are they in debt to? That makes no sense. It's anarchy. The fascinating concept. Um, you mentioned being in the system chance and that's, uh, that's really ringing true. Obviously, that's the double-edged sword of the pension, which is, uh, on the one hand, a tremendous act of mercy and an achievement for unions in the last century. But it's like everything else. It's been weaponized. And once people get in that mindset, they're not going to rock the boat. You certainly see that with teachers. A lot of teachers hate the system, but, you know, they're 15, 20, 30 years into it. And hey, you know, retirement's coming up at some point. I remember, I'll give you a vignette. Um, when I was at another school, uh, I was actually getting into broadly, but without any exaggeration, my job of a, of a teacher is to teach the truth. So uh, there was no... Um, there was no abuse of office here, but I was getting into certain dynamics that we've been touching on and that you're familiar with, with the legal system and the whole treadmill of it all. And you would see, even at 15 and 16 and 17 years of age, this happened a number of times, you would see people's eyes get big over a few weeks. I can think of one, one girl in particular, and then, you know, all of a sudden they shut down. Obviously, they would have said something to a relation or to someone else, and they would shut down and they were and I could see it I could see it happening where people were in in you know their own little ways because they're seeing that at 15 16 they're seeing themselves being confirmed to use a religious and legal term they're seeing themselves being confirmed into the system and you know I, I'm pointing out certain things and they would get very big you know they, they would you understand exactly what's happening they would be saying things just like what you're saying without any prompting just connecting the dots in their head and then you would see them come back from Christmas break or from Easter break or summer break or they started their job. And that whole interest and that whole um, awareness was dead in them. And and that, you know, that'll be to the day they die, presumably, unless they, they come around. But you can see the system. I, I've had that opportunity. You could see the system in in action. It's fascinating and, and um, not heartening at all, I must say. Oh, uh, you know, so when we're going to move over to the solution section that I've been promising, <laughs> uh, I want to kick off with like, are there any particular authors or teachers that you think have got a lot to, of good stuff to say about this? I have had a lot of guests in the past recommend Steiner, Rudolf Steiner and his writings. And I wondered if maybe you're familiar with him at all or if you've got other heroes in this field that you can bring our attention to. A sure thing. Um, would you have me do that right now, Chance, or should you, should I address your uh, previous question of what healthy pedagogy looks like? Well, I think those two things can kind of weave together. And if there are any, you know, points along the road of explaining a healthier pedagogy theoretically, and that maybe you can say what authors or 
thinkers could give more information on different aspects of it, but you know, I'll let you steer and we've got about 15 minutes to do it. I'm not afraid to go a little past if that is necessary, but let's see what, let's see where we can drive the boat here. Great. So I'm yeah, having fun, by the way, this is great, John. I just want to say thank you for your time today. This is awesome. Great. Absolutely. Iron sharpens iron, like they say. So I think this is beneficial for the both of us and, and hopefully for, for the audience as well. Um, so yeah, let me define um, what I might see healthy pedagogy to be and uh, then get into some sources there. So I'm in the interesting um, world where I'm actually a big proponent of formal education in terms of you know the, the, uh, the course to use John Gatto's expression. And yet I'm, I'm uh, sympathetic of all the, of a great deal of the critiques or even have my own critiques of the system. And that's always led to um, collisions uh, with, with sorts. And, and if we have the time, we can get into it here or maybe in some other um, point is, um, you know, moving beyond just the criticism phase into actually on the ground building, not just, you know, myself or my family or my children, but actually having a social consciousness of that. That's where I see a lot of the research community or the truth community or whatever you call wherever we're at. Um, that's where I, I see we fall absolutely dead flat. And if we're, we, we're going to move beyond just um, spinning our wheels, I suggest we, we need to have a, a much more applicable social awareness of education than just the critique and just, well, hey, we're doing this for my family. Maybe that's a topic for another um, uh, recording. But howsoever, where I'm coming from with healthy pedagogy is, first of all, to encourage scholars. And it was, so we're speaking about formal um, learning in a, in a traditional sense that scholars ought to leave the mainstream, even if they have that pension in the offing. And that can be very scary for, for wife reasons, as, <laughs> as you mentioned. Um, but indeed, as, as well I know, also just surviving in this commercial uh, society. So um, in terms of you know, the perpetuation of knowledge, systemic knowledge, deep learning, Actually, I would I would suggest that it doesn't begin with student-centered learning. We hear that a lot, but I would say with scholar-centered learning, um, you know, we have even in, in common jargon, we say we cannot give what we don't have. We, we hear that you can't give what, what you don't have. And the thinkers in our society and the teachers, those uh, need to be... Um, encouraged, I would say. And then then uh, students, uh, I, mostly I, I deal with adult students or, or late teen students myself. So that's what I, I mean by that. But younger ones as well, as much as formal education is appropriate to, to younger students. So as we consider what is healthy pedagogy, maybe that's a good thing to kick off with. When is formal education appropriate? And one of those critiques is maybe it's not appropriate at eight or nine years of age, much less five or six, right? So it's it's reappraising that. Obviously, pre-modern societies, Af even today, Africa, parts of the Middle East, parts of Asia, they don't begin this stuff until, uh, you know, formal learning until, you know, 12, 13, 14. And there's a whole, you know, emotional aspect to that. So besides 
asking ourselves, when is it appropriate to begin formal learning? Myself suggesting probably later than, than we do in the West. Because a lot of that, that formal learning, gets, getting back to that commercial note that we've been riffing on, a lot of that's not because kindergarten or third or fourth grade is, is you know, great for the child's academic brain. It's because in this system, parents have to work, right? In the 19th century, it started with fathers leaving the home. And then in the 20th century, it started with mothers leaving the home. So, um, you know, the family is completely destroyed with this sort of dynamic. So in a, in a larger uh, respect, you know, Education, it fills just basically a babysitting need, largely. Um, not John Gatto, but Thomas Hine, which speaking about sources here, Thomas Hine, uh, who's more of a sociologist and, and a historian, I suppose, he gets into this in his book, The Rise and Fall of the American Teenager, that high school, for instance, um, we'll say compulsory high school, after World War II, is nakedly to sop up a certain percentage of the labor market. And actually, it was the labor unions, to their discredit, who encouraged that in order to, you know, rise prices high for the, um, for the wages. So uh, an appraisal of all of education, when, when it should be done, is, is appropriate and, and uh, integral to my understanding of healthy pedagogy. Then... <clears throat> that connection, that long-term connection, uh, both with the student, I, I would say getting back to that spiritual and that personal health, being in the same space, even physically in the same room for lengthy, I don't mean lengthy periods like eight hours a day, but I'm just saying that familiarity of, of um, environment as opposed to in this country, moving classes every hour, changing schools every couple of years, um, and indeed, that that intimacy with the with the for though and for those who do have a mind for formal education, which is not most people, frankly, most people are not do not thrive in that environment. Um, but for those who do, um, long term uh, interaction with the scholar over several years. Right. Um, that's something that that I've had, you know, very thankfully I've, I've benefited from in, in my different um, schools that I've been in. It's just because the schools are broken. They can't afford teachers. You've you've been with the same class for several years and that produces much, much more thorough learning because, you know, the discussions you've had with them, you know, the books that you've had. And with my observation, I've seen this with many students. You don't even see real intellectual growth until two or three years. The first two or three years is just building the foundation. So, you know, we Once have to need that much time for the mask to come down. I just would throw that in there. Like, cause kids are, we talked about this in the first one. So go listen to that for expanding on that. But people's people have like a mask. They were mask. They wear to the teacher, to their friends, to their parents. And you need time to develop the connection where you can see who they really are because otherwise it's yeah you're just hitting a brick wall with a lot of kids yeah that trust is is really um difficult to come by and i've seen this in these alternative you know these homeschool co-ops and these high schools and things um that are you know 
trying to build a new model. I've seen that personally with, with many dozens of examples in, in my you know, past 13 years altogether of, of teaching is that even people who have an awareness of the critique and so forth, they, they don't have the trust. Even in these alternative communities, there is no sense of trust. And, and if you're dealing with younger students in this society, you're also dealing with their parents. That's just a reality you, you must deal with. And uh, there's the, the horns of the dilemma where you have the, the, the student's trust, but you don't the parents. And even these are parents who are woke into industrial education and they read Gatto and things like that. And it's on the ground, it's a real difficulty. So I would encourage as part of a healthy pedagogy trying to define this before I introduce a few uh, sources, a few more sources, I would say uh, to anyone who's serious, not just being a keyboard warrior or hearing the endless critiques, but actually working towards restore and grow uh, this noble human endeavor of education, I would encourage you to really check how much, if you're a student, how much you trust the teacher, and then how much, uh, if you're a parent, the same question, how much you trust the teacher. Because if that isn't there, it's just going to collapse. And I've seen that in, in various ways in my life. And it's, it's really discouraging to, to watch um, that, that suspicion lead to mediocrity and lead to failure. And so um, we can go on and on about the definition of healthy pedagogy. But to recap, I would say, uh, yes, let's reappraise our assumptions of things. And I gave the example of when to start uh, education, formal learning for those who it's appropriate for. Some people, it's not appropriate at, at a certain age and others, they have that window open up in their intellect and they're hungry for it. So we have to be sensitive to that. Um, then the interaction, that long-term a connection I would just the I would suggest as being uh, integral to this definition of healthy pedagogy, uh, long-term interaction with scholars, with fellow learners as well, and then also with subject material, with subject matter, because the modern system deliberately breaks things up uh, every every couple, you know, every forty-five minutes, right? Um, and then the final thing by way of recap I would say is that trust. Right. If you're serious about a formal education and, you know, you that that's for you, then you have to trust the scholars and you have to trust this. If, if you go into a, one of these alternative schools or even one of the mainstream schools or whatever, you shouldn't be there if you don't trust the people because you're just going to waste their time and you're going to waste your time and you're going to lead to to frustrations. So those would be my three Cravats there. Um, would you like to weigh in, Chance, before I give my um, sources there? I find it interesting how your approach here wasn't to delineate how to educate, but to like, what are the things that are foundational that we need to reappraise before we can even think about how we're going to restructure things? So I like that because you're just putting, you're just asking the qu big questions. And uh, also, the trust issue is really big, especially with universities these days. I don't know how you could walk into one of those institutions feeling a sense of trust, but as a, maybe a gullible, just out of your teenage years person, you might be able to walk in there and trust it completely. And I guess that happens to a lot of people. But also staying familiar with subject matter for a long period of time and like staying on something for an entire day, definitely more efficient to batch what you're doing into a larger batch and then have to like revisit it in 
you're done in 45 minutes. So like the next time you come in, you have to try to remember where you were. And it's just a very disjointed feeling. And I think all that is really just stemming from getting people to be trained to follow cues when they hear the bell to go do this. And then that just kind of carried over into the secondary education. But probably the biggest point is that that you made is that it's not even necessarily for everyone to have formal education. And that what the fact that the reason kids go to kindergarten is mostly just so that they can be out of their parents' hair and taken care of by the state while the parents work for the commercial system that whatever business they want to work for, maybe they're pursuing their own thing. I mean, anything's possible, but the, the fact is that like, you are separating children or kids from their parents, and neither of those words is really a right word. But you're people's people's young from their, uh, you know, who created them. <laughs> anyway, so that's a big deal, and uh, that's to the child is going to feel like abandonment to different degrees. For some kids, it's going to feel like extreme ab- abandonment, especially ones that already weren't getting the right level of attention when they're at home anyway. And now like you're in this entirely different environment and you're already stressed because you didn't get paid attention to enough or taken care of. Well, so that's like super real. And what's been lost is that the functionally humans used to just raise their, their own young and teach them what they needed to do to do what they did. And we're in a modern society now where you no longer have to be a blacksmith. If your dad was a blacksmith and you can go your own way and that's great, but we should not think that that means that there's a one size fits all approach to how to prepare someone for life on the planet. And that even the idea that you need to go get formal education seems to me to be worth questioning entirely because most, if you had healthy and functional parents, then you're actually going to be better off being with your parents until at least until your early teenage years, at which point you're like mature enough and developed enough that you can separate the being away from your mom and dad for long periods of time from feeling abandoned by them. But up until, I mean, depending on the individual, I think up until a pretty long into their childhood, like eight, nine, 10 years old, 11 years old, you could feel totally abandoned just by not getting enough time with your mom and dad. If, I mean, if you're a normal, what passes for a normal person in our current culture. So all those are really important. I think the, the, psychological well-being and the physical health of the one being raised should be the thing that matters most. And then everything else is just optional, but you need to know how to live. And there's only really one book you need, which is the owner's manual for the human body, how to operate it properly. But we don't have one of those. So we got to write that first. But anyway, I think you're right on with all those uh, critiques and questions that you raised and, and also surprised me because I didn't, I didn't know what approach you're going to take to answering the question, but I like that approach because it's like bringing it back to us as the thinker and the one that's going to do something. And are we going to be just taking in the spectacle sideshow conspiracy information or critique about culture or whatever it is, spiritual knowledge, whatever it is that we're searching for and accessing, are we just consuming that as another form of consumerism Or is it eventually going to lead to us doing something different in our daily life or making a different decision about what we do with our family? And I think that's where the rubber hits the road here. And not everyone necessarily can be involved in pedagogy. But when you think about the fact that every person alive was a kid or a child and every person that's ever going to be is going to start off as a kid, 
that means that it's not really just like up to this one group called the government or to the teachers to be concerned with how people are being raised. It's actually everyone's concern because we all have to share this world. And also we all are going to be subject to whatever that passage is or right of right of passage or lack thereof. And and that was another great point from our first conversation was discussing the power of rites of passage. And I find that to be one of the most crucial elements missing from humanity in modern times as well is that there's really no experience that delineates a, a sense of personal responsibility and self-reliance in a person now or a human being now. Instead, you just go through this graduation process of different degrees or whatever, but then it's now you get on the next track after you finish the first track. And it's like, at what point, okay, am I there yet? Am I grown up yet? And a lot of people, even like 30 years old, they feel like, well, I feel exactly the same as I did when I was a, a kid. And to some degree you should, but in, in other ways you should be like, I'm definitely an adult now. I'm an adept now. Like I can, I'm responsible for me. No, no parents are responsible for me. No government is responsible for me. No teacher is responsible for me, no matter how I might work with those type of authorities or entities or interact with them. But ultimately it's me that has to guide myself. And that takes us all the way back full circle for to the beginning of this course, which was about the being self-directed thing and how that's really got to be at the end of the day, what you have in mind first is that like you are free to self-direct and not choosing is a choice. Yes. Uh, before I give some of my sources there and, and um, put that in, yes, I think that's what we're seeing now getting on that, that issue of trust is that people are aware of, or some people are aware of the problem. I think this this year and this ongoing um, experiment is is disheartening to many many people who who have a, an eye on agendas and things because things have gotten much worse, obviously. And what people are like in the West, um, even without you know all the conspiracy stuff, just given the you know the wars and, and the, the the biological. Uh, attacks on us and so forth, people are very skittish. It's almost like the dog that's been abused. I wrote a whole book on this um, uh, about kind of the last 150 years or so about how people's sense of trust has been has been mismanaged. And that's the difficulty that uh, we need to address in the alternative or the the research or the conscious community or whatever this is that, that all of us um, who are watching this and participating in this belong to obviously we have a certain awareness of things happening whatever you call it and we we need to make that grad speaking of graduation we need to make that graduation from just consuming you know the critique to actually acting on it in real life and that is um a, a hell of a problem let me tell you um in in my own experience with people people who could give you every book and every every backhanded deal when you actually ask them to you know, pay tuition, show up to class on time, uh, answer an email in time. I, the real things I've had to deal with. Good luck. Good luck. Um, and there's that disconnect. It's a digital disconnect, really, because we're more and more subsumed by this artificial reality, even those of us who are onto the real knowledge. And we need to just check ourselves in order to build a real flesh and blood society that that isn't always on... Um, you know, on Zoom or whatever, or in the books, but in, in lived reality. What a great time this, this 2020 is to seize the brand from the fire. But in terms of 
uh, books. I, I don't know enough about Rudolf Steiner to, um, to comment on him, but I, I was very influenced early in my days with, besides John Gatto, uh, Ivan Ilyich and his book, uh, Deschooling Society. It's a little fella. It's a little fella. But it's it's a very good book. It's more academic than Gatto's text is. But he really gets into the sociological impact of industrial education. So if Gatto's more of that personalized um, observation, uh, Ivan Ilyich, who was a Jesuit, um, uh, who spent a lot of time in South America and in the Caribbean, um, he talks about just the impact of industrial education on mass societies. And I suggest a lot of the prostrate and um, helpless feeling, even those of us who think we're woke, are feeling, we feel overwhelmed in, in 2020, I think a lot of us, a lot of that comes from the, the effects of modern pedagogy. So this is a great text, um, by the by, he actually likens uh, modern education and the influence of that. Um, he, he was quite interested on the uh, impact of the automobile on, on cities. And he actually makes a parallel to how the automobile changed a city development and people's interaction with physical space with modern pedagogy. And it's quite interesting. He also, and I'll, I'll end it here, he also um, posits something like the Internet before there was an internet, he speaks about people like going to a coffee shop and putting a piece of, um, you know, a note card, a note card on the tables about what subjects they were interested in. And people who were interested in those subjects would go to that table. So he, he envisioned a type of chat room, um, you know, 40 years before these things took off. Anyway, I would recommend Ivan Ilyich uh, besides Gatto for further reading. I'm just kind of blown away by that because I haven't come across a lot of Jesuits that I felt like had good intentions, but that wouldn't mean that they don't exist. And that's, that's interesting, man. Uh, I've never really heard of that writer. So it is a little fella. And then you've got some books that you've written and I've got plenty of fuel to add to my pile of uh, text to get through. And that's always a really good thing. I mean, when you become self-directed, you realize how, instead of this feeling of boredom that a lot of kids and teenagers especially feel like that they are suffering through, as soon as you become self-directed, it's like you're no longer possible to be bored because you start asking yourself, well, what do I want? It's usually way more than you can even fit into a day or into an hour or, you know, what book do I want to read? What do I want to learn about? Well, there's actually an embarrassment of riches. Like there's so much wealth all around us. Wealth is the reality Abundance is the reality to use that sort of new age spiritual buzzword, but it's actually a fact. I mean, we have everything that we need to be whole, be happy, be effective in whatever it is that we feel like our life's purpose here is. And, you know, even when it comes to education, at the end of the day, no one learns anything other than autodidactically, meaning that you can have the greatest system of how to instill knowledge and wisdom into a being that any human has ever created. And then the person that goes and sits through that, whatever the regimen is, if they don't care, if they don't want to do it, they decided they're close to it, they'll walk away and forget it all for the most part. I mean, I'm not saying that that's what most people are like. I'm just saying the opposite is also true. Like the, you are the one that makes the choice that I'm going to, I am going to pull myself up. I'm going <laughs> to 
to use a phrase from my friend, uh, podcaster Crow Triple Seven. I'm I'm going to get the safety pins off this diaper, and it's pretty soon the whole diaper's coming off. I'm going to be a I'm going to be big, <laughs> and we all need to do that. Like we all need to get out of these diapers, not just the ones on our face, but the ones that we're in, and uh, the and the way that we look at our own self edification, and the way that we look like for handouts. I'm using the we again as we discussed, but. I know that actually there's ways I'm codependent on systems and things that are unhealthy. And so I will use the we in this sense. And we all have different levels of engagement with different things that are no longer serving ourselves or nature or humanity, or maybe never were, and we're only ever destructive and consumptive. So uh, I'm happy to spend time with you for some more sources. If you've got that in mind, or we can, I want to give you space to talk about what you do with, your institute and give people more clues about how they can actually get on the John Coleman train as far as learning more from you and becoming more self-edified, right? But before we do that, uh, I'll say we did pass the hour mark. And so I'm just going to let this air out to whatever it gets to. And then the whole thing will just go out to the free audience as a regular podcast, because like I said, I'm going on a trip and I, I need to shorten my production window, so I'm only going to create one file here. So that means uh, time limit is lifted, and we can just do as we will and kind of make our way towards the goalpost here. But want to give you plenty of room to flesh out anything that you've got left hanging in your brain, and also any more sources you want to point people towards. Tell us about books you've written. I want people to have an idea what they could read from you, and also, of course, about your institute. So. That's a whole lot of stuff. Let's see if you can get it all. <laughs> sure thing, Chance. Sure thing. So uh, where is it? Where is my Horace Matt? I suppose for sources beyond Ilyich and, and Gatto, uh, for those who really want to do a deep dive into this uh, topic of pedagogy, I would encourage to uh, to read you know, as much as possible, and to read even uh, primary documents like Horace Mann, wherever he is around here in this room. Uh, I showed last last conversation the fat old compendium of of his writings. So even if it's a model uh, which which uh, we don't ascribe to necessarily, the the you know Horace Mann's the father of of modern compulsory education. It is very very helpful to know the uh the background the real history of this uh towards that end i would also recommend a writer from i believe uh one of the boroughs of new york uh anna kamenyets uh who has written books like diyu and um, various other texts analyzing mostly higher education but get uh, get that history knowledge of things. And one of the things you realize, and I hope I've conveyed this in the past two conversations, is that especially when you're dealing with the early pedagogues um, whom uh, whose system has become so monstrous, that it didn't start out that way. It really did uh, with, with the 19th century sorts. It really did start off um, quite earnest and uh, well-meaning. And it got really, I would suggest, uh, historically, got really subverted um, during the interwar period for, for all sorts of reasons, which would be a different uh, conversation. And it's been hijacked like so much else. We've used that word weaponization. So in terms of sources, I, again, uh, would recommend 
Altogether, uh, Gato, Ilyich, Kamenets, and indeed the likes of Horace Mann. And, and hey, how about this? John Dewey. John Dewey, when you actually read his writings, isn't such a wicked uh, villain. I, I spent the last year really getting into him and um, having you know, conversations with people from the John Dewey Society. And you realize, you know, even his vision, which had its critiques, certainly, of, of utilitarianism and, and what he meant by that, uh, that even that has been subverted. That's, you know, welcome to the 20th and 21st century is just pirates. Absolutely. Uh, and, I mean, that goes for every field of human endeavor. Like people vilify Freud or sometimes even young, but I mean, you don't have to agree with everything somebody says to get into their work and go, okay, here's someone who is trying to do something and I can respect that. <laughs> and there's something to be learned and nobody is all wrong all the time. We're all evil all the time. We're all good all the time. We're all right all the time. And that's part of life. So being able to sift through those things and actually get the gems and the diamonds from the rough is always important. And a lot of times it's just simply not as rough as you expected at all. And you're never really going to like, there's not very many books that are going to be a bad time for you to read. Even the word book in Latin is liber, which is the same as free. Or freedom so there's a lot to be gained from reading excellent and as a latin teacher um congratulations from from uh getting a few latin words in here liber and cursus and indeed um um uh, what do we call it? in english it's um nihilism you use nihilism that comes from nihil so very good my, my latin thumbs up to you chance um but i'm just glad it wasn't non sequitur <laughs> in there. Excellent. Um, but I, w one of the things you asked as we as we round the bend here and, and come to those goalposts is uh, the work of Apocastastasis. So um, this is a college. It is primarily a, an in-person affair. Well, where is it in person? Where is your buildings? Uh, we use uh, the, the socially distanced libraries and cafes and so forth, the, the parks around here in Connecticut. Um, there's also very much behind the scenes, a lot of works happening with our online platform because uh, we're, we're branching out into um, into online work more, more formally. Um, and I can uh, speak in the plural, not just in terms of the authors, which I've been up to this point. Right. I, I, I've always used the we because it's not just been the John Coleman show, but now I actually do have a fine scholar. Um, Dr. Nirmal Das that I, I've been doing quite a bit of work with. So he's going to be teaching a few courses for the school and um, type of history and linguistics and so forth. So we're building out there. We got some publishing going on. But besides the classes, which is the primary um, manifestation of apocastastasis, which is a Greek word, by the way, which means restoration. So the restoration of learning uh, prior to COVID-19, um, we were doing a lot of work in libraries and bookstores and so forth with, with lectures and musical presentations and so forth. And I'm always open to people who have, um, you know, collaboration ideas in, in terms of that or in other things. And then there was the online work uh, besides the, the private classes, you know, the YouTube channel, the conversation show, which put us in touch and uh, also publishing publishing of authors and poets and so forth, that we have a journal that we put out every semester, a podcast every month, a newsletter with exclusive content. Um, the topic of this entire year for the newsletter is 
uh, what I call the knife's edge. That's the name of this essay that I'm releasing month by month chance. And that is the difficulty that those of us who are advocating formal college and, and grade school education are in. So we love the classroom dynamic. It's our artistic medium. Uh, just like people approach painting or podcasting or what as that, that some of us weirdos that we are, we approach the classroom that way. So we want to preserve the classroom. But how do we manifest um, for myself to use a new agey term? How do we manifest the critiques of education and provide against a lot of the errors of formal education? So it's this tightrope that we're, we're, we're um, in to maintain the learning environment, physical learning environment, in-person, formal, um, and not to fall into the same errors of the industrial system. The straight and narrow path. That's it. That's it. Um, so, yeah, so the school has those three branches there. The in-person classes, the, um, the, the production department, we'll say, or the, the presentation department, and then the, the various other related publishing and online works. Um, in terms of my books, uh, you can get those at uh, pakistastasisinstitute.wordpress.com. Uh, they're free for the PDF there, so you can just scroll down a little bit. I'm not too too hot with the, uh, the digital stuff, but you can get it there on the PDF file. And then if you're interested in hard copies um, of the books... Here's my first one. Uh, again, you can get these for free online, but if you want to support the work, uh, Hurt, which is my cultural history since the 19th century of trust. Hurt. And then the other one, which deals with pedagogy, it's very uh, polemical, I must say, is the Trotsky train. Not the Coleman train, uh, but the Trotsky train. So um, that's my my um, extended and very, very rhetorical um, and fiery look at education. I don't normally speak like I do in that book, but sometimes you do have to be a bit more um, forceful with things. And then we have also the journals um, that we have. So those are all available. If you write me at Apocalypse Stacy, you can get hard copies or just get free copies online. Um, but that, that covers the work, I think, pretty, pretty thoroughly. That's phenomenal, man. And I wonder if there's any teachers out there in the audience in some capacity somewhere and uh, that might want to get in touch with you. Who knows? I'd love to find that out. I love when guests and, and audience members get connected. So if you're out there kind of thinking about it, man, I kind of want to talk to John or read his book or something. Do it for sure. Do it. Uh, don't I mean, at least at least get some of that literature that he's providing to you for free, because that stuff, that work is not free for him to create. So he's sharing knowledge and wisdom with you freely, you know, take him up on that. If you think that you've got somewhere you can take it and, and output it in a good way, that input processing output thing that we talked about the first time, but yeah, here we are. I think uh, this is a good place to wrap it up. And we went over around hour 20. So that's about the same amount of time as a normal free show anyway. And it for plus members, I, Thank you for your patience that there's not going to be an extension on this episode, but granted that we just did over an hour on John's channel, there's definitely more in this content. So overall, there's definitely a lot to chew on with this topic. And I think that we did it justice, especially, um, I mean, really both times, like this was a great continuation. It felt very natural to uh, just flow into further reaches of this question of pedagogy. And I think that it will continue to be relevant as a, 
conversation point and we'll revisit John in the future with maybe a more specific direction. I'll read one or two of his books and uh, get more into seeing what he's got to offer. And then, you know, also, man, if you ever have a topic you want to pick my brain about, just let me know. And I love having shows that have sort of a, a shared direction, the way that we did on yours, where we kind of covered that article that was, or that uh, essay speech, what have you. That was really great. So always happy to work with uh, someone that's truly a professional and does it out of love when it comes to these type of conversations. I know this is like your thing, whether it's in a one-on-one through the internet or whether it's in the classroom setting, you just like this feeling of energy that comes between uh, multiple living beings whenever they're sharing their inner light, the, inner, the light of their mind and shining it on ideas and on nature and trying to figure out the shape of things and, uh, you know, working together in that way and that self or that reflection between two beacons of light that are, you know, living beings that we are. So that, that always builds up a type of harmonic energy where there's more energy in the result than what went into it. And I feel like this conversation was definitely one of those again, and that's why I do what I do. So thanks for getting me all uh, excited and had an awesome afternoon chatting with you and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it here, but thanks so much, John. If you got anything you want to wrap up on, feel free. You've got the floor. Well, simply to thank you chance for your gracious invitation to be on your platform. I hope this was beneficial to yourself and to the viewers. And I certainly welcome any uh, future collaborations. I, I should certainly hope uh, for some and also uh, I would welcome any correspondence or even teachers that are looking to teach courses uh, for us in person or online, because that's going to be a growing need in the spring semester. Sounds good. You heard the man. So, all right. I'm going to hit the uh, big red in broadcast button and see how this new StreamYard jammy worked out for me. But it seems like it went great. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And I'll catch you guys when I'm back from my much needed vacation and it's not really a vacation it's just like a temporary reprieve in nature which is should be like the normal so i'm excited to get charged up outside and i'll, I'll see you guys later i love y'all thanks john talk to you guys soon